Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Today, we're going to be diving deep into residential life. I would describe my guest as a force of nature. She is currently Assistant Director for Residential Life and Accommodation Office at the University of Leeds. She has an MA in Student Affairs in Higher Education, and she is co-founder and co-host of the Free Food and Drink podcast. If you haven't given it a listen, I would recommend you do. It's well worth it. Prior to that, she worked at Campus Living Villages as head of residential life. She is a truly amazing person, full of energy and passion for life, for learning and residential life. This is going to be such a fun conversation. I recommend you buckle in as I welcome my guest, Rebecca O'Hare. Yay! That's an amazing intro, Mel. And when you say force of nature, I'm like, am I a tornado? Like coming into rooms and annoying people? So thank you very much for inviting me. This is uh, very exciting, I have to say, to be part of your brand new podcast. Lucky me! Yes, thank you for joining me. And I mean force of nature in an absolutely amazing way. You light up a room, you have such energy and effervescence. It's incredible. And I know that in the residential life field, you are quite well known. But for any listeners out there that don't know of you, would you like to share some of your journey about how you ended up in this incredible space? Sure, I'd absolutely love to. I think how I ended up in the world of higher education and specifically student accommodation, and then within that, the world of res life, as we call it, uh, it was completely by accident, which is not necessarily unique. A lot of people in higher ed in the UK and in Ireland fall into the world of higher ed because they get a job after university and then they work their way up. So my story is that I went to art school. I always wanted to go to art school since the age of six when I won a competition by copying the person next to me. I hope they don't come back and take my trophy because believe it or not, Mel, I still have it. Yes, I do. I know. I'm sad. Um, so yeah, I went to art school. I'm a very creative person. It's a big part of my identity. I trained as a teacher and decided, okay, I'll give teaching a go. But in Ireland, I didn't have much luck getting a role as an art teacher because lots of schools don't have them. And if they do, they only have one. So I did substitution work for a while. And then I ended up working in an area of higher ed where it was like adult education or doing part-time courses to further your career. And I really loved that. I loved meeting people who wanted to do better and do more and be more. And I thought, right, this is actually quite nice working with students. Um, and then a position came up at the University of Limerick and I was living in Limerick at the time in Ireland. And the role was village manager. And the role was living in student accommodation and running a property. And I remember thinking, well, I was a student and I liked being a student. I like working with students. Therefore, I will like this job. And my husband at the time 
he is an ex-student of that university. And he was like, don't take that job, Rebecca. And I was like, why? It'll be amazing. And he was like, they're animals. They're animals out there. Don't, don't do it. Because he had seen the kind of negative side of student accommodation where, you know, the antisocial behavior and the parties and whatnot. But that wasn't my student experience. So went for that job, got that job, moved in. It was fantastic. And I actually got it at a really good time in my life because two months after getting it, financial crash hit Ireland in 2008. My husband lost his job, but we were living in free accommodation. And actually that allowed him to go back to university and do another degree. So worked there for five years. And my boss at the time, John, told me at some stage in my career with him, you know, Rebecca, we hired you because we knew we could teach you everything about managing a building, the compliance, the health and safety. But what we were looking for was attitude and someone to take our, what they called campus life program model to the next level. And he started to introduce me to the world of Res Life, this experience of students living in student accommodation and what we can do. Because for a lot of people, they may think that student accommodation is, well, you book a room, you get your key, you pay your rent and that's it. But actually it's so much more than that because there's so much research that says the experience you have in student accommodation can positively or negatively impact your academic experience and can potentially cause you to withdraw from university. So I got pretty much immersed into the world of res life, did loads of research, put my kind of nerdy academic hat on and saw what was happening in other countries around the world. And I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. Res life is for me, it's so fun. It allows you to be creative. So I kind of scratched that itch for me. You know, I could come up with like kind of wacky ideas and test things out as well as do my day job of like, you know, managing buildings and looking at student behavior and things like that. But I absolutely adored it. I thought this is the job for me. And I think sometimes I reflect, well, I reflect quite a lot and I go, how did I end up in this career? And I think it was always meant to be because I actually had quite a bad first year experience when I was at university. I thought when I went to art school, I was going to meet my people, Mel. I thought, you know, everyone's going to be like me. They all wanted to go to art school since they were six. And when I got there, it wasn't like that. Some people decided, I only decided two months ago, I wanted to go to this university. So it wasn't the best first year experience for me. It got better, but actually I think that's probably why I'm quite passionate about the experience of student accommodation, because I know what it's like to have a poor experience and have that feeling of feeling very alone or perhaps thinking I might want to drop out. Um, no one understands how I feel. And I went to a quite small university where we didn't have loads of clubs and societies and we didn't have res life and people to kind of scoop you up and spot that you were a bit lonely might need something so so yeah I was there for five years and then after my husband um, graduated and started his new career he went from business and marketing to working in um, pharmaceutical science very different but he loves it we moved to the UK and we came to Manchester in 2013 because he was pursuing a master's and I remember he said to me like are you okay to come to the UK and I looked up Manchester and I was like 100,000 students there couple of universities I'll be grand as we say in Ireland I'll be fine I'll get a job and I did got a job at Manchester Students Union working with all the res life um, teams there which I enjoyed and then I got my dream role working with campuses and villages as their res life manager because doing all the research I was doing about res life um, I found campuses and villages they had this whole philosophy about providing the place for students to live learn and grow and I'm like that is a bit of me I love this and I used to, because I, I kind of set my mind on getting a res life manager position, I, was, I would Google it every two weeks, like without fail, I would Google res life manager jobs. And they'd come up in various things around the country, various universities. And I would literally go, okay, is that commutable from Manchester? Mm, Manchester to Lincoln? No, that's a bit far. I'm not going to do that commute. 
Um, and then one day they were advertising for one and I didn't know it, but their head offices were in Manchester. And I can't believe at the time I didn't know that. But when I saw the role, I called my husband and I was like, look at this job, look at this job. And I was tapping the laptop screen going, that's my job, that's my job. And he said, well, you better go get it. And uh, I did. And that was just a phenomenal four years with them. And then I did a bit of consultancy and that brought me to November 2020, where I'm now working at the University of Leeds, which has been absolutely, it's only been 18 months, but it's been such a fantastic 18 months. I feel extremely privileged. I walk around that campus um, every day and I have so many pinch me moments that I think, God, I get to work here. I get to do this amazing job. Like, how lucky am I? So yeah, I, I sometimes can't quite believe it, how lucky I've been. I think you make your own luck. But it's so funny because you talk about your job at Campus Living Villages and that's how we met, wasn't it? I was speaking at a conference. It was quite an interactive session that I was doing, an interactive keynote. And I remember asking this question and the room was quiet. And you know, it's always going to be quiet. You know, you have to wait. But I was waiting quite a while. My stomach started to go and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work. And then this person with this lovely Irish accent put her hand up and said, I'd like to share. I've just got my ideal job. And so began our relationship all those years ago. And that passion that I talked about right at the beginning shone out in that moment and I know that when you were working at Campus Living Villages you had the opportunity to not just experience red life in the UK but also in Australia and across across the world. I'm really interested to understand what are the key differences that you see? There's so many key differences I think actually I mean, you're right. I did get to go to other countries, which was a, a gift, an absolute gift in itself. I remember the day that my boss called me into an office and there was one office in Campus Living Villages that didn't have windows. It was a little kind of box room when he called me in. And I, my first thought was, oh, I'm in trouble. What have they done? And he uh, sat me down and he just looked at me and I thought, oh, it's, I'm going to get fired. Like I thought the worst case scenario. And uh, he said, they want you to go to New Zealand. And I remember thinking, that's really far away and that's further away than Australia. And uh, he said, yeah, they want you to go to New Zealand. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, they want you to go next week. I was like, what? <laughs> that was a bit like, well, I'm at a conference next week. I can't go next week. But anyway, fast forward, I think two or three weeks later, I went to Australia. And I remember um, before I was, um, sorry, going to New Zealand, my, our CEO at the time said to me, are you going to pop over to the uh, Sydney office while you're there? And inside my mind was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, well, I suppose I could, Rich, if you want me to. And um, he said, you should definitely pop over to the Sydney office. Yeah, I'll just pop over to the Sydney office. But the difference is, I would say, is that residence life in the UK is still quite new. And in fairness, it's probably quite new in Australia and New Zealand as well. Where it's very established is the US and North America generally. Um, but it's very new in the UK, probably around, you know, 15 years old, give or take or so. Kind of start, started pretty much in um, Edinburgh, where they saw that they had a lot of international students, particularly American students who were not settling in in the way that they had hoped to settle in and were feeling very lonely and isolated. And they began to talk to them and find out what were the differences between their experience in the US in comparison to what they were experiencing in Edinburgh. And they started to learn about residence life and wardens and residence assistants with their student roles and the experience in residence and then how their expectations are not being met. But also from a research perspective, we're starved of research in the UK. We're getting better at it. There's not very many academics who specialize in this particular area, although more work is coming out. But in the US in particular, 
you can do a degree in student affairs or as we say over here student services and then you can go on and do master programs and lots and lots of people who are enrolled like myself will have educational doctorates or phds there are not people like that in the uk there are some people who've come from that part of the world to work in the uk but for north americans it's kind of like a, a requisite that you have to have this area of academic rigor completed in order to do particular roles whereas most of us in this part of the world and over in Australia and New Zealand have kind of fallen into the roles and then worked their way up through experience like you do in any normal career ladder kind of way and so that's kind of one of the main differences and I think as well students are coming to university in the UK not necessarily knowing to expect that res life exists or they may not know about residency systems which are the student roles or they may not know that you will have a ward and either live in or not live in in your student accommodation that you can go to. Whereas in other parts of the world, um, because it's been established for much, much longer, they know about that prior to getting there. So they know they will see those people, they will hear from those people, they know that experience is going to happen. And it's not the same for us. Unless, of course, you've got brothers or sisters or the family members or friends who've gone through that experience can tell you about that as well. So something that I've been looking at in Leeds is how we increase our awareness. It's good, but it can certainly be a whole lot better. And that's something I'm very keen to do more of and improve upon. And lots of that is, you know, the marketing of it as well. But actually, it's about helping students to understand what is residence life? What is the role of res life? Why we're here to help you and support you and not be the fun police and close down parties, which is the kind of perception that a lot of people have as well. So, so lots of differences that are very unique to different cultures and different countries. And I think we're starting to see as well in Europe, the emergence of similar models happening particularly in the private student accommodation market as well, in the university market as well. So I, I get a bit like a magpie and I get, you know, I'm very excited by shiny things. And so I see things happening in different countries and a bit like, ooh, what are they doing? I can nip that idea. Oh, what are they doing? Let's rob that idea. And then I can I kind of leadsify that. So yeah, it's, it, it's very different, but that's the beauty of it as well. Absolutely. And I think it's so interesting because my eldest daughter is of university age. So I know lots of people going off to universities and work colleagues as well. And they probably don't have the experience of universities and they express, oh, I'm not sure how they're going to settle in. And I'm always on the, well, there will be a Res Life programme. Will there? What's that? So you're absolutely right about raising the awareness. And if I think back, you know, I started my university career at the University of Leeds back in 1996. And Res Life didn't even exist. Leeds had the, the warden system, but Res Life wasn't something that, as you say, it's only really the last sort of 15 years or so that it's become a an area of specialism and something that can have such a big impact and I guess from that I'm really interested in this whole part about the measurement because from what I understand in the US they are much better at measuring the impact of res life but I feel that in the UK this is something that we're still lagging behind and that can make it difficult for people in your position when you're going for more funding or a new initiative or more people so what are your thoughts around that you're definitely right that it can make it difficult for when you're trying to get more funding or if you're trying to sell an idea and influence somebody that you need more staff to make this more successful and more better i've been very lucky this year in that i've expanded my full-time res life team from two to five and we have eight and a half to 9,000 students in residence. So to have only two full-time staff members to manage that program and liaise with our warden team and support our resident assistants is, you know, is, is madness. So I'm very pleased that we've been able to do that. But 
But I found that a lot of my peers who work in similar roles or have aspirations to work in Res Life or certainly have aspirations to expand their program without the support of a line manager who truly understands what residence life is and the impact that it has and, does, and isn't someone who needs that data or needs the numbers, it's very, very difficult. I've been exceptionally fortunate in that I've had people who've understood what it is or I've somehow convinced them what it is. And I think the way I do it is that I will show them, I'm like, come into residence, look what we're doing. I will tell the story of res life as it's happening in our residences. So I'll make sure it's in, if we have newsletters, if there's like emails and shout outs and things going on, if there is a way we communicate to the wider business about what teams are doing, I will shout from the rooftops the successes of what my teams are doing because it's a very visual thing. And sometimes res life relies on a lot of like anecdotal kind of feedback and whatnot. And you can do your annual surveys or however way you do it. And there's a whole debate about students have got survey fatigue and they definitely do because everybody wants a piece of them. And I get that. But you've got to regularly kind of push the story of res life, of what you're doing, how you're doing it and documenting it. Getting photographs here and there, getting little video clips and whatnot. I'm always talking to my team about that. Not so that I can like, you know, talk about it on social media and whatnot where I quite active actually I, I don't really do that I, it's, it's for them and to share with my line manager the impact of what we're doing and getting feedback from students as well as and when we can do that but in North America in particular um, because there's lots of research and they've gone out there and they've done huge pieces of work around measuring the impact of res life they're just they're light years ahead I went to the AQI conference which is the um, Association of College University Housing Officers International quite a mouthful uh, back in 2019 and it was the most phenomenal experience ever like it was just they're just in a different league I came back and I'm like they're in a different world they're talking about things and concepts and research that were it's not even on our radar over here in the UK and we're kind of like 10 years behind and then I think maybe Ireland's probably 15 or 20 years behind but it's exciting because it you know it shows you the possibility of what you can do so for example in North America there's something called living learning communes which is not something we really do over here think one or two universities might do that I've come across in my time although I haven't researched it extensively and living learning communities are these kind of student hall communities that they create whereby if you're a high achiever they might have like a high academic achiever community they might have communities whereby only women live there but they have certain interests like say in feminism or women's history or women's rights and issues they have other communities that for students who are studying particular courses or programs and what they've done is that they can well measure the performance of those students and figure out is creating that kind of res life model that environment are they academically going to do better than if they're not living in a learn living learning community and they have found that they have actually done better now it's a choice to go into living learning community it's not that you're forced into it other communities that exist as well and there are some actually in the uk and some in ireland uh, are the rainbow housing communities whereby students who are part of the LGBTQ plus community um, have a choice to live with other people who are part of that community because they feel safer or it's more inclusive. Um, and that's kind of been met with lots of different types of hostility, but also been kind of very much welcomed. Whereas lots of people have had the understanding or thought that, oh, students, if they identify as being gay, then they're, they're allocated in there and they're kind of like, you know, put into this kind of ghetto that's not what it's about at all it's, it's a complete choice but in terms of the impact of res life yes it's very difficult because it's very much seen as something as like the rainbows and unicorns of you know student accommodation but it's not just about that it's not just about the events and activities and the opportunity to make friends it's about the entire holistic experience of university and the role that accommodation plays and 
it's about welfare it's about discipline it's about upholding the rules of conduct and you know making it a safe space for everybody to enjoy and to live harmoniously so it's a complex thing and I am um all the time about particular type of projects that I could do or particular types of research I'd love to do. I see some of my peers in other countries teaming up with academics and doing really cool research. And I'm like, who could I approach in Leeds who does not know me? And I'll just send a random email and go, hey, you don't know me, but great news. We could be best friends. Like, let's do some cool research together, even though I have no academic credentials to do like research. And I think all the time about ways in which we could do that and make it better so that you know, I could create something that not makes things better and leads, but actually helps inform the wider Res Life community in the UK, if that makes sense. I have no doubt that during your career, you will get involved in something like that. If any academics and leads are listening, I'm open. My DMs are open. <laughs> but you're so right. And I think also, I mean, as you were talking there, what came up for me is I think that, you know, with the residential life teams that I've worked with at various universities, almost we're trying to do what the NHS does preventative stuff as well is if you can create this community if you can provide the learning then you'll stop students hopefully going into crisis and 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 all those other things that we sometimes see play out in these communities life has a real part to play and I think if we could get just some measurement around it it would be a start and I think one way to do that potentially is is around case studies as well I mean you talked about that and you know, when I've done student focus groups and listening to their stories and the impact that it has, I, I think sometimes we don't capture that. And that is, that is like you said, you tell a story. The, the way that you've got money and people is by telling that story. And if we can capture some of those stories, then that may be a way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and, and there's lots of different ways to measure it. It's not necessarily about the number of students who've attended X event. You know, it's actually, I think a lot of it is about are they aware of what res life is? Do they know what it does? Are they aware of how to, you know, reach someone or contact someone if they're in crisis? Do they know what the role of a res life assistant is or a warden, whatever that's called in your institution? Do they know how to contact them uh, out of hours? Do they know that out of hours even exists? I think that entire awareness thing is actually a massive part of it, as well as like, how do they rate the program? Would they go talk to them if they have a problem? What kind of things do they talk to them about? What would make it feel better or what would more likely make them want to go talk to somebody rather than call security? Things like that, I think, are just are rightly as important. Absolutely. For people out there that are looking at you and thinking, I, I want that role. How would you recommend if they're maybe not in the field currently or they're maybe an RA? What would you say to them? What's been your biggest learning in, in your journey so far? I mean, that's a really great question. And there's probably like 10 million different ways to answer it. I think for me, just in, if we look at the world of work generally, and um, the, the thing that I've always really am quite passionate about is, is attitude. So my own kind of personal saying, and I have lots of different phrases and sayings that I go to, but for me, your attitude, not your aptitude determines your altitude. So, you know, there's lots of things that we're all very good at. There are lots of things that you know we can do better at so for me i'm not a numbers person i don't think in spreadsheets mel i wish i did but i don't i'm ideas i'm visual creative i'm great at bringing people together and i love people and you can probably tell i'm definitely an extrovert so i kind of utilize my strengths in my career but I, there are things that i will do that cost nothing so i will always arrive on time 
And if I'm late for something, you'll know about it. So I canceled trains this week going to work and I was very angry about it because it's out of my control. What can you do? You know, I will be prepared. I will have the best attitude in the room. I might necessarily know what's going on in terms of like understanding what people are talking about, but I'll do my prep work and I'll ask questions and I'll have the best attitude and I won't go in there and be like, oh, I don't want to do this today. You know, I don't tell myself that I have to do something. I tell myself I get to do something like what a privilege I get to do something, whether it's a long commute from Manchester to Leeds, which is, you know, my, my, my life most days. Um, and I, I try and spread that to other people. I will be dressed for the job. I will, you know, I, I right now I'm in like a, you know, I'm in a jumper and I no makeup, but you know, my working week, I make sure I'm presented the best that I can be because for me mentally that puts me in a state of work and whatnot. So those things I think you can bring to any job or any career that you want to do, and they're very important and they cost nothing. But actually, I think it says a lot about you as an individual. And people see that. Managers see that, people, managers, managers see that. I don't care what anyone says. And a lot of time when you're recruiting for somebody, you're recruiting for attitude, not necessarily certain skills or certain experience, because they wouldn't have brought you for interview if they didn't think you had a certain experience. When they're interviewing you, they're interviewing you for culture and fit and all those things. So you all have power over that, no matter what you want to do. So if you want to work in the world of Res Life, start connecting with people who already work in the world of Res Life. Whatever job that you want to do, go out and find someone who's doing that job and reach out whether it's sending them an invite on LinkedIn, connecting on Twitter, do that. Because 99.9% .9 of the time, people will feel that it's a compliment. They will absolutely love to talk to you and they will, you know, they'll set up a call with you or chat via email. I have done that. I am a professional LinkedIn stalker. If I send you an invite, it's because I'm genuinely interested in you as a person. I am quite bad though at sending invites and not putting in a little note saying, hey, I just want to, you know, connect. Sometimes I do if I've got time to do, but sometimes I'll just see people on my feed because somebody else is like them. And I'll connect with them because I find their work very interesting or I'm thinking about a project I want to be involved in. When I moved to the UK in 2013, I didn't know anybody, but I had a Twitter account that I was using for. Um, you mentioned at the start that I've got a master's in student affairs, but I also have a master's in something called social practice in the creative environment. It's very arty farty now. So I've got two MAs, but I had a Twitter account for that particular MA course that I was doing because I did a project that, funnily enough, was about student accommodation in the local community, but it was an artistic response to an issue that was going on. That's a different podcast episode. But I used that Twitter account to connect with people. So I started following people who worked in higher ed, who worked in Res Life, because that was my goal. I'm going to get a job in Res Life in the UK. Those jobs were starting to appear in the UK. They certainly weren't in Ireland, and I wasn't going to get one in Ireland. So what am I going to do? I'm going to find out what they're talking about. What are the issues of res life right now? What are the issues in UK higher ed? And anybody who works in UK higher ed knows that there's something happening every day of the week, the Guardian, the Times, somebody's always talking about some issue in a university or in higher ed generally. So there's a lot happening in the UK, which makes it exciting, but also a bit stressful at the same time because it's like a microscope on you the, the entire time. So connect with people, ask questions, you know, reach out, say hello, introduce yourself, tell them that you want to work in particular roles and look at job descriptions. When I was applying for this position that I have now, I was contacted by a recruiter on LinkedIn. I didn't see the job advertised. They said, would you be interested in applying for this role? I had a look and I thought, I could never do that job. No way can I do that job. That's, that's a really big job. I can't do that job. You know, imposter syndrome take over. But I started to look at it and go, actually, no, Rebecca, you do know a bit about this and you do know a bit about that. I did that classic thing where you know, women think they need to meet 100% of the job criteria where men will apply if they meet like, what, 30% or something. But I definitely was like, you know, I'm a little bit tick, I can do this, tick, I can do that. But 
in previous years, when I've looked at positions that I thought I'd like to do that one day, I've looked at it and thought, okay, I've no experience in this thing here, but how do I get that experience for when that job does come up? So that when I get that job interview, I'm the best candidate and they cannot say no to me. And that's the attitude I've always had that, you know, constantly trying to upskill, but not necessarily by doing a course, but by meeting people and networking and knowing what are the key issues and people, when people ask that question, what are the five things that are happening in student accommodation right now or in higher ed? So that could be as informed as I could be. So that's something I'm quite good at, but I think it's probably the competitive nature of me as well, because I'm naturally quite competitive, which, you know, I told you about my trophy that I had when I was six and I still have it. So that will tell you that I'm definitely competitive. So I think things like that for any job, whether it's res life or not. And if anybody is listening to this and they think res life sounds like a really awesome career, I mean, drop me a message. I will happily talk about it until the cows come home and you have to tell me to stop talking about it. Absolutely. And I love that. I'm going to repeat that phrase. Your attitude not your aptitude determines your altitude. I love that. And I'm going to nab that if I may. You can. Yeah, it's, tra- it's trademarked. It's owned by me. It's not. I actually saw it in a calendar years ago and I just never forgot it. <laughs> so true. And that advice that you've just given is, is priceless. And it's something that we don't pay enough attention to. So, so thank you for sharing that. You can probably guess where we're going next. Uh Uh-oh, (laughs) uh-oh. You know I inhabit this marvellous world. When have you, and and you've shared some of it already, but I know you'll have learned lots more stories. When have you had to dive deep and what impact did that have on you? I feel like sometimes I have to dive deep most days, to be honest. Um, A lot of people say to me, and you've kind of alluded to it, oh, you're so confident and you're this and you're that. And, you know, I think it's all smoke and mirrors some days. Um, but I think diving deep, when I worked in campus living villages, I had phenomenal opportunities to get involved in projects and really get involved in a glo- like a global business. You know, how many times do you get to, you know, do something like that in your life? And it really gave me a great foundation for so many things. So I had opportunities at times to present to the global CEO. I mean, that's not intimidating a- at all. It's not intimidating at all. And and when you're just, you know, early in your career and you're like in your early 30s and whatnot, and you've never done anything that before, that can be quite intimidating experience. You can get in your own head and worry about that. But I had a lot of support from my boss at the time. But what I used to rely on is my creative strengths. You know, if I had to do a presentation, I would make it a little bit quirky. And I would always take a risk in doing that because you never know how it quite lands. But generally, it's, it's worked quite well for me. I also had to do a presentation and actually I didn't have to do it. I decided I wanted to do it. I wanted to launch the new Res Life model in CLV in a particular way, because for me, it was about the future and the direction and where we we're going to take it. And there was a particular time in our head office where I came in on the weekend, didn't tell anybody I was doing this, came in on the weekend and I went into the boardroom. The boardroom had loads of glass walls, covered the entire place in tin foil from top to bottom and turned it into outer space. Essentially, this is my vision, outer space. And I had a sign on the front window that said, uh, when people came in on Monday, it said the future of res life at 11 a.m., you know, don't miss out, something like that, and a picture of a spaceman. And prior to this, weeks before, the, the head office team had been invited to this meeting, and about five people accepted. But when they came in the Monday and saw, oh, something fun's happening here, and I get to kind of do something fun for an hour, all of a sudden, they're all, what's this? What? One person actually even said, an IT team, what's res life? And I was already working there for about two years, and I was like, oh my God, who are you? I remember that, that made me laugh. 
So what they didn't know was I'd gone missing and I had a team member um, all lined up and he had to do a big announcement. So he cued some particular music. It was this very dramatic music. And I'm not going to sing it right now, but it's this really famous classical piece of music where it's like, do, 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 do. It was like really exciting music building up. And the room was in darkness. And before they went into the room, they were given like space goggles and they were given that candy that when you put in your mouth, it like cracks in your mouth because they were told they were going into outer space and they had to adjust to zero gravity. So I built this kind of whole like excitement and this kind of like, you know, set the scene and something big is going to happen. And all the while, they don't know where I am. So my colleague, Mark, introduces me and says, let me introduce you to so-and-so. And I come in in a full NASA spacesuit and start to walk around the room as if there's no gravity. And I was like, guys, there's no gravity. And, you know, they just thought it was hilarious. And then what I then did, I said, I said that I was going to predict the future of res life at CLV. And, um, and I was the, the whole time that I was doing this, man, I was incredibly nervous. Like I had to go to complete plan because it was all there was all timings involved and certain tech that we were using. Like if it went either way, a second or wrong, a second or two over, it was going to actually ruin the entire presentation. But I built something that I called the Flux Capacitor 3000. And essentially what it was, was a colander upside down uh, sprayed silver with loads of cutlery all over it and tin foil and wacky things. And I pulled people out of the audience and I put it in their head and I told them that if they weren't, if they were quiet and they really concentrated, that their thoughts and the future of res life would come up on screen. And uh, I had this whole thing built and whatnot and they loved it. And I, I rigged who I was going to pull out of the audience. One person that was called up was the director of the operations. And um, he's actually Australian. So I had Skippy the Bush Kangaroo come on screen and Crocodile Dundee quotes and the theme tune from Home and Away. And everybody started singing Home and Away. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, wait, we're getting, we're getting a moment. We're getting a, you know, some, a glimpse into the future. And next something would come on screen and I would explain it and talk about why we're doing what we were doing. And then it would go back to Skippy the Bush Kangaroo and whatnot. I really had to kind of like get over my own imposter syndrome and things like that and actually rely on my strengths to do that. And, and the best thing about doing that is then, it becomes memorable, but memorable for all the right reasons that when the global CEO comes back over, they're like, oh, aren't you the space girl? I'm like, I'm, I'm the space girl. Yeah. yeah. I'm the, and then he's like, oh, how is res life going? Oh, really? Well, yeah, we were smashing, you know, our engagement rates left, right and center. So, so things like that. And um, I've, I've never been afraid to take a creative risk, I w- I'll say. I love that. And I knew there was a reason I told people to buckle in at the beginning. <laughs> I knew that. There is a video somewhere that exists of this when I, when I converted the boardroom into outer space. And it's somewhere on a Facebook message I sent to somebody somewhere. But uh, I must dig it out because it always makes me smile. Yeah. Dig it out and put it on Twitter. You can put it out on Twitter the day that this episode goes out. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> That's a good idea, actually. But I love that. I love that in terms of, obviously, you are a really creative person and some people may not, but it's actually the the message I take from that is about playing to your strengths. And if you play to your strengths and take a risk, you're still outside your comfort zone, but it's not so far out that you are end up in space. You are there and, and able to manage it. So brilliant example thank you and I just I've just got all these images swirling around my head thank you for that (laughs) so opposite to that then obviously you've dived deep when have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree I really love this question because I know where it originates from in terms of that quote that your whole kind of business brand is about like if you if you is if you believe that someone is what what is it again to say for me one more time so I get it right because I will ruin it 
If you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will spend its whole life believing it is stupid. Yeah, definitely. And again, going back to like your strengths and whatnot, I think for me, you know, self-awareness is really important. Like knowing what you're good at, knowing where you're not necessarily so good at, what you can improve upon, but asking for help if you need it. And for me, when it comes to numbers and spreadsheets, I'm just not that person, Mel, but I'm okay with it. You know, I don't get, I don't get um, annoyed at myself anymore if I don't think in that way. It doesn't mean I'm not commercially aware. Or I don't know, like, you know, how to save money for a company or a business or my own particular area that I manage. I know all that stuff. I am quite commercially aware. It's just that when we're thinking about things whereby the answer is a financial decision and whatnot, I might necessarily know to go to that. I'll go, well, let's just do this really cool, fun project over here. But I'm okay with that. And I think sometimes, you know, being really vulnerable here and actually, and hopefully I think I, I, I tell this story because I think I might be helpful for other people, is that I probably felt a bit that way when I was going through the process of applying for my current role. And I, I spoke to her earlier on where I genuinely thought I couldn't do that job. You know, it's got a fancy title, which is a very attractive fancy title and one that I was certainly aspiring to be one day, but I didn't necessarily feel that I was good enough to get that role. And I was quite surprised that the recruiter was contacting me because, you know, the cynic in me is a bit like, ah, you just want to get people in and get your kind of bonus that you get when you hire somebody and whatnot. But equally, they have a role to do and they have to get a pool of people together to complete the service for the people who want to recruit in the first place. And when I was going through the entire process, there were several occasions where I kept saying to my husband, I'm going to withdraw my application. And he was like, you're not withdrawing your application. Rebecca, cop yourself on, as I say in Ireland. And I said, no, no, I'm like genuinely, I'm not being drama queen here, but I'm going to withdraw my application because I feel very out of my comfort zone here. I don't feel I'm capable of doing this role. You know, it's a Russell Group University. Who am I to go rocking up to a Russell Group University? The revenue of 50 million quid uh, in, in red services, which I would be responsible for and manage all these people. Like, who, who do I think I am, you know, going for this role? And um, this went on for a couple of days and he kept saying to me, Rebecca, nobody knows as much about student accommodation or res life as you. And I was like, well, actually, that's not true. And I started naming off all these people, you know, just I, I, like talking myself about the entire process. And uh, right up until the day before the interview, where I actually had a little cry at home. And I said, I'm not going. I'm, I'm just not going. And I'm generally not someone who gets nervous by interviews. I quite like an interview process because, you know, it's an exciting thing to do. And it's an opportunity to meet new people. So I always look at it in a very positive light. But this one was probably the most, most nerve-wracking position I'd ever gone for, ever. Um, bar my very first job when I was 14, I worked in a garden shop. But apart from that, I was very nerve-wracking. <laughs> and um, I got to Leeds train station and I rang him and I said... I'm, I'm withdrawn. I said, I, I don't mind if I don't get the job, but I don't want to be the worst person there, Rob. He was like, you won't be the worst person there. Will you go? Will you go? Got my taxi, walked up to the hall. And then when I walked in, I felt okay. And because it was a, an open kind of candidate day, we met the other candidates and I knew some of them and that was fine. And actually it was a really lovely day. And obviously it was a great day because I got the job. But up until that very point of walking through the doors of the location, I kept thinking, I can't do this. I am out of my depth here. Who, you know, because I had this expectation that I was going to see loads of white men in suits and they're all these like very commercially savvy people. And the questions I was going to were, were asked were all numbers questions. And I, and I was like, I'm not that person. I'm not that person. But actually, the questions I got asked in my interview, I started to realize that what they were looking for was somebody who was really passionate about people and people development and culture. And I thought, this is the stuff that I'm good at. This is the stuff not that I'm good at that I actually love and is a joy and a privilege and a passion of mine. So, I left feeling like I'd done my best, but that entire process of, you know, finding out about a role, 
and thinking, I'd love to do that job. I think I can do that job. Oh, I can't do that job. Maybe I could do that job, but no, I definitely can't do that job. You know, that kind of, that kind of whirlwind that you put yourself through, that pain you put yourself through, that loads of us, particularly women, you know, and, and I mentor um, a young person in the University of Leeds and part of the mentoring program that I love. And she's in her early 20s and she's going through that. And I'm just like, stop, I'm telling you, it's not worth the pain. You know, you're better than you think you are and you're awesome and you can do so many great things. Um, I think, yeah, career I felt for that role and other times, but that in particular is when I felt very much like a fish that couldn't climb a tree. <laughs> or a fish that climbed a tree when you got, when you got the job. Yes, eventually. <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it? it? It's that whole process. And you so beautifully demonstrated it there that at those times of hardship, you know, we've got to dive deep, but that then enables us to climb high because you had to dive deep to overcome those feelings, not go back on the train, but continue up to the university, step through that door and, and do the interview. And I really wasn't being that drama person of like, you know, I'm, I'm saying to you, I can't do it. I don't want to sit and they'll go, ah, no, you'll be grand. Go on, off you go. Aren't you, aren't you great? Aren't you brilliant? It's a great job. You should do it, you know? And I was like, oh, no, I really, really had a lack of self-belief. And, you know, other times I think when people have to dive deep or I've had to dive deep. And again, I think this comes down to values is not getting a job that you really wanted. I've been in that situation where I applied for a res life manager position in a university, going back about seven years ago now. And I really, really, really wanted it. And I didn't get it. And the interview experience was not great. I thought I did my best, but actually I didn't feel like I really connected with the people who were interviewing me. And actually that's, you know, that, that tells you something. You, you, I think if you're not connecting with them, maybe it's not the job for you anyway. And I can say that now in reflection seven years later, having had all the experience that I've had. Sometimes you can go down the, the route of, woe is me, I'm the victim. And you're allowed to do that for a few days. But after that, you have to pick yourself up dust yourself down and start again and rely on attitude that you know whole kind of area that I absolutely love and fundamentally believe makes a difference to you as an individual when you really harness it to go forward and start going after the dream again whatever that is and you know it's kind of like rocket fuel isn't it, it gets you going again and gets you set in that direction but I've met lots of people in my time who've had expectations of getting a particular job and not getting it and taking the news badly and holding that as a grudge for months and years. And really, it doesn't serve anybody, but it particularly doesn't serve you. Thank you for sharing that. As our listeners could probably guess, we could probably chat all day about all different sorts of things, not just red life. If people would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, please come and get in touch because I love hearing about other people's careers and their journeys and whatnot. So I'm over on LinkedIn, it's just Rebecca O'Hare. You should be able to find me pretty easily. And then my Twitter username is at Rebecca underscore ResLife. Um, and then you mentioned our podcast, which we've been very, very bad at running lately. We haven't uh, released an episode in a few months, but we're trying to get back in the wagon. So it's called Free Food, Free Drinks, and it's about working in the world of student affairs and student services. So have a listen. We'd love you to. And I will put all those links in the show notes. So it just leaves me to say thank you for taking us on such a fun journey. I'm still in outer space. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave people with today? Well, I've already mentioned about your um, attitude, not your aptitude determines your altitude. But what I would also like to say is that everything you want is on the other side of fear. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. 
To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple Podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't.